Thank you all for being here tonight. We are so grateful for your presence. We have a good crowd tonight, and uh, that's wonderful. I uh, hope uh, when you came in, if you picked up one of the bulletins, please do so if you haven't. It's got an updated uh, list of the sick and other information as well. If you're visiting with us tonight, we are blessed once again to have guests. We are honored to have you tonight. I want you to come back and be with us anytime. Our Sunday morning worship service is at 930. And we'll have Bible classes for all ages at 5 o'clock. So plan to be here with us if at all possible. Uh, this coming Saturday is Veterans Day. And uh, we love our veterans. And what I want to do just quickly, if you are a veteran, if you've served in our armed forces in the quietness of uh, this evening right now, just stand where you are just for a second. If you have served our country in the military, I want everybody, especially the young folks, to see who these individuals are. And uh, you know, we thank all of our military, uh, but Saturday is for our veterans and we appreciate them and their service to our country. Of course, we are sad to report the news. Many of you are already aware of this, that uh, Drew and Katie and little Annie Kate lost their home last night in a fire. And uh, we are certainly thankful that uh, Cody Triplett saw the fire and uh, banged on the door. He's a hero. He really probably saved their lives and we're thankful for him being alert as he drove by. And uh, of course we want to remember Katie and Drew and their family in our prayers. And I just have to tell you this, I was overwhelmed when I went over there last night and saw 40 to 50 of you folks right there with Katie and Drew during this most difficult time. You just don't see that happening in a lot of places. Uh, I don't know if Cody uh, Triplett, the individual who lived down the road, was gonna be here tonight. He said he'd be here Sunday, but he was so impressed. He says, are all these people down here from the Church of Christ? And I said, yes. He said, I'll be there Sunday. Uh, you know, the Bible says, by this shall all men know you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. Uh, that happened last night, and so many of you who were there to give your support during a very difficult time uh, uh, during Katie and Drew's situation. It's very difficult when you lose uh, your physical belongings as they did, and we're so thankful that they're okay, that they're healthy, and uh, that's the positive thing, and we're trying to be as optimistic and look at the good that can come from something negative. So let's remember Katie and Drew and their family in our prayers during this difficult time. And I know we all are gonna join hands together and support them and encourage them in any way uh, that we can. Have a couple of thank you notes I wanna read to you tonight. This is from Jason and Becky uh, Zelke, uh, who is the interim minister, I guess you would say at Indianola. Uh, of course, we've got a group going down to Indianola on Saturday to check out uh, that particular work and see what assistance that we might provide them. And we've been in contact them, uh, contact with him especially. Uh, they lost their 21-week-old uh, baby. She was 21 weeks along, and she lost the baby. It was heart-wrenching for the family. And he writes, thank you for all your prayers as we were in the hospital and also after the loss of our daughter, Anna Jane. It's an encouragement to know that our sister congregation was in prayer and Christian love, uh, Jason and Becky. And so let's continue to remember them in our prayers. 
Then I have this note from Jimmy Timms. It says, thank you so much to each of you for all the amazing kindnesses shown to our family during the death of my sister, Marcia. Your calls, texts, and many, many cards, delicious food, and beautiful piece of pottery have meant so much. Your presence at the graveside service was so heartwarming, but your sincere, constant prayers is what keeps us comforted during this sad time. It's such a blessing to be a part of an amazing church family. With sincere Christian love, Jimmy Timms. And so uh, let's remember those two families <clears throat> who are grieving in our prayers. I want to mention the focus group, the Fellowship of Christian Adult Singles. Uh, you'll be gathering at Chris Beard's home this coming <clears throat> Saturday at 6 for food, movie, bonfire, and good fellowship. Bring a lawn chair. And uh, if you're going to be able to go to that, please sign the list so that enough food can be prepared. Also, those who adopted a soldier uh, need to pick up your box from the church foyer and uh, be sure and sign the list. And those need to be turned back in by November the 26th. Also, the Leoma Church of Christ Young uh, Ladies Day will be on Saturday, November the 18th, and sign that list, please, uh, if you can uh, plan to go to that. Our Golden Circle Luncheon is set for this coming Tuesday, November the 14th at 11.30 in the Annex, and please keep in mind that our food pantry and clothes closet will be open tomorrow, as well as next Thursday from 9 to 10.30, uh, last month, we helped over 201 families, and this month probably will be more. So uh, all those who always come and help, thank you. If you would like to come and help and see what's going on, we would love to see you as well. Uh, that's all the announcements that I have tonight. Uh, Drew is going to be leading our singing. Brother Tommy Barragona will uh, lead us in prayer, and Brother Guy Gardner will present our devotional thoughts. Invitation song, if you want to mark it this time, it'll be 915. Invitation song is 915, if you want to mark that at this time. Once you get that mark, you can turn back to 129. Number 129. We'll sing the first, second, and fifth verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was I? 
you, Drew. Good evening, everybody. Hope everybody's having a good week. Uh, for a few moments, I just want to talk with you tonight about a really a character trait that we probably don't think enough about. We talked with it, talked about it a few weeks ago in the youth group, and they had several good comments about it. So we're going to talk about it tonight. If you have your Bibles. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're only going to do verses 1 through 3. Now, this topic that we're talking about tonight, we find in the greatest sermon ever preached. And I don't think you can really argue with that statement. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest recorded by Jesus in the New Testament. I believe it's the longest stretch of consecutive speech from our Lord recorded while he walked on the earth. Is that right, Ken? I, he agreed with me. So anyway, let's pay close attention to these words, even though we're looking at just a snapshot of it tonight. The sermon actually begins in verse 3, and that'll be our focus, but uh, let's pay attention to 1 and 2 as well, because I've learned through the years, probably as you have too, you know our Bible doesn't have any wasted words. Uh, there's purpose behind every thing in it. So Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through read, uh, 3 read, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, the poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. All right, before we look at that verse 3, let's, let's look at verse 1. Why in the year 30 A.D. or roughly around that time would Jesus need to go up on a mountainside? Because when we're trying to learn something, we need to paint pictures, right? He didn't have a microphone. He's got to be above the people he's talking to. He needed his voice to carry. Now, I, I assume Jesus had a pretty powerful voice. I don't think he had a mealy mouse voice. I figure it carried a good ways, but he still wanted to be above people. But verse, into uh, verse 1 and verse 2 caught me by surprise when I was preparing this for the youth. It said he sat down and then he began to teach. I'd never noticed that. And there's a whole lot you could read into that. The youth had some amazing comments as to why I asked them, why in the world would he sit down? And I don't remember who it was, but they said he's probably tired. And he probably was tired. But... When you sit down to talk to a group of people, typically they get more comfortable. The setting becomes more casual. The listener's attention becomes a little more attentive. What we do know is when Jesus began teaching, he taught a truly revolutionary sermon. We could argue he turned the world upside down with what takes place over the next three chapters. So let's look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Are you kidding me? But he doesn't just say they're blessed. Watch this. He says the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now words matter. Let's look at that word poor. Poor means different things in different contexts, right? It might mean you don't have any money. You're broke. It might mean you have poor health. Uh, my grandmother 
I was an unusually skinny kid. Those of you who knew me when I was little, you might remember that. I, my first driver's license, I put 85 pounds on it, and that was a lie. I weighed 78 pounds. I was strangely skinny. So when I would walk in her house, she said, boy, you're so poor, get in here, I gotta feed you something. Poor has lots of meaning. But what we're looking for is how Jesus meant poor. And how he meant it is exactly the way it was meant in the Old Testament. It's, it's consistent with Old Testament scripture. If you look at Psalms chapter 34, verse 18, it said, The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Isaiah 57, verse 15 says, For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. We need to understand God is willing and able to revive the heart and spirit of the lowly and oppressed. So applying what Jesus means, what he means when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, what he means is God blesses the brokenhearted, the crushed in heart, the humble, the poor in spirit. Now, why do you think that is? I think that when you get to that point in life and you come to that stage where you are so poor in spirit, you are so broken, you have the self-awareness to know that you can't do anything outside of God. And that's what he's looking for. In the book of James, the Bible tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to us. The, these Old Testament verses paint a picture of what God is expecting us to do, the attitude we should have. You know, master teachers, you've been around a few in schools. Jesus was the ultimate master teacher. We're, we're doing in, in schools, we have to do as principals, we have to do these formal evaluations. They're dog and pony shows. So the teachers get all nervous and they have to sign up and we come in and they're real nervous for 30 or 40 minutes and we have out a laptop. And, we, and then there's some teachers like the one today, she said, I don't care when you come to my classroom, I'm doing the same thing every day. And so I dropped in today and she taught quadratic equations like it was we were getting ready for the Super Bowl. It was amazing. She's a master teacher. She was painting pictures. She does that all day, every day. Jesus was the ultimate master teacher. He gives us the best illustration you could ever see of what poor in spirit means. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is Jesus elaborating on poor in spirit. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, deep down in his heart, that Pharisee knew he didn't have anything to offer God. He had become really good at the churchy stuff. I bet you he never missed anything he was supposed to be at. And he, he did all those things he was commanded to do. But he had forgotten what good people do. He bragged about his fasting, his giving, but his heart had gotten real hard. And that's a lesson to us. We can fall into that trap today if we're not careful. You know, occasionally Christians can get really good at playing church, but not be productive at all in our Christian walks. And I talked to the youth about this a few weeks ago. It is great. We are, we are supposed to be here every time the doors open. And yes, if you can go to every camp and everything, that's awesome. That's wonderful. But if you're going to be champion churchy here and then go to school and be queen gossip gal and social media bully boy or captain cusser in the dressing room, you're doing great damage to the church. If you're doing that at work, you're doing great harm to the church. If people don't know we're a Christian when we're away from here, what are we really doing? The tax collector understood. He came to God and said, I'm poor, I'm broken. God, I am bankrupt inside. Have mercy on me. He left justified. If we're going to wear that name of Christian, we've got to realize it isn't a name we can remove depending on our social, social situation. And the youth has heard me say this. There's really nothing easier than being a good person at church. Can you be one away from here and live as Christ lived? Y'all know this church has not survived for 2,000 years because people showed up and sat on their faith. We have to make a difference out in the world. Each one of us here tonight is blessed beyond measure, but if we think we've done anything on our own, we're no different than the Pharisee. Everything I have and everything you have is a gift from God, and that's how we should treat it. So tonight, if you've allowed your heart to become hard, or if you have not become a Christian yet and need to be baptized, we give you that opportunity tonight to come as we stand and sing. Walk with the Lord in the light of His birth. What a glory stands on our way. Why would you wish to live? He abides with us still. And with all who lift us and go.
Will you bow with me? Our Father, we, are, we come to you tonight as humble servants. Father, we're so thankful for the blessings that you've bestowed upon us. And we're so thankful that you took care of Drew and Katie and, and uh, Anna Kate last night. We're thankful that, that they came through without being harmed. We pray that you will always be with us and help us in all of the works that we're involved in. We know that if it's a work of yours that, we, that no one can keep us from succeeding. Be with us as we go to class tonight and we pray that we will learn from your scriptures and, and learn how to live our lives so that we can be productive for you. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As our teachers go to class, we'll sing the first verse of 490, 490. <clears throat> when peace like a notes on it as well if you uh, want to do that and that's fine also if you don't have one just raise your hand down front, they don't, uh, I think Rick couldn't see all these people over here. Yeah. 
He's coming around. Next time, I've got two. I need more three next time to help me pass these out. While he's passing those out, I want to thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, as we begin a new quarter here, uh, I'm looking forward to our particular study. I hope that uh, you'll feel free to uh, make some comments as you see fit, uh, make some observations. Uh, I know it's more difficult in a class like this than it might be, you know, in a smaller setting, but uh, we'll make sure your comments are heard, and uh, I hope you'll think about doing that. Uh, looks like I won't have to make any extra then for next time. Okay, good. All right, I want to tell you a little story here about a doctor, and a lawyer, and a minister. An old man, you know, he was just a grumpy uh, miser in so many ways. He didn't have any friends. And before this man died, he asks a doctor, his lawyer, and a minister to come to his bedside. He said, I've always heard that you cannot take it with you when you die. But he said, I'm going to prove to everybody that you can. He said, I have $90,000 in cash under my mattress. It's in three envelopes. One envelope has $30,000, another has $30,000, and then a third has $30,000. And I want each one of you to take one of these envelopes, and just before they close the casket and throw dirt on me, I want you, who I'm going to trust, to throw those envelopes in that casket. Well, these three individuals, the minister and the lawyer and the doctor attended the funeral and each threw an envelope into the casket just like they were asked to do. And on the way uh, back from the cemetery, the minister said, you know, I just don't feel right about this. I'm going to confess. I, I needed $10,000, you know, to make some repairs on the church building. And so I took $10,000 out of the envelope and I only threw $20,000 in. The doctor said, well, I too need to confess something. We are working on some renovations at the hospital and I took out $20,000. I only threw $10,000 in the casket. The lawyer said, gentlemen, I'm just surprised. I'm shocked. I'm ashamed. I don't see how you could, you know, uh, deny this man of his request and hold out that money. He said, I threw in my personal check for $30,000. So anyhow, I guess uh, we'll find out if you're paying attention or not, right, Luther? All right, our, our series this quarter is going to be how that we can make our lives more meaningful. Don't we want our lives to be meaningful? Don't we want our lives to be worthwhile? You know, there's a lot of different standards out there about, you know, what it means to have a meaningful life. And I think the fact that God wants us, who are his children, to have a full and abundant life I think is evident from the provisions that God has made to allow us to have that abundant life. And of course, I begin with the provision 
of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Jesus Christ was sent to this earth so that we might live an abundant life. You know, you think about some of the words of our own Lord while he was on this earth that testify to this. For example, in John 6 and verse 35, Jesus declared himself to be the bread of life. He is the source of spiritual nourishment and spiritual growth. In John 10 and verse 10, Jesus even revealed one of the reasons why he came to this earth. He said, I come that they might have life and what? Have it more abundantly. Jesus said, that's the purpose for which I've come. I want my people who are my disciples to live an abundant, full, meaningful life. In John chapter 11 and verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he be dead, you know, he's going to live. And Jesus made it very clear that he is the source of life. It's through him and through his victory over the grave that ultimately we will be victorious over the grave and ultimately uh, live the abundant life in eternity when this life is over. But we can have the abundant life even while we are on this earth and our earthly existence. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if we're going to know the abundant life now and live the abundant life now, live a meaningful life here and the hereafter, there needs to be developed within our own uh, minds a deeper appreciation for the blessing that's offered. When Jesus offers us the opportunity to live an abundant life, there's a great blessing here that's offered us, isn't it? It's something the world is seeking out. It's something that people around us want and desire. And so we need to kind of understand what blessing Jesus is offering here. Now, the dictionary defines abundant in a way. How would you define the word abundant? When Jesus says, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, what does that word abundant mean to you when you talk about that word? Anybody? More than you need. More than you need. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. Full and pressed down. Huh? Full and pressed down. Full and pressed down. All right. Give and it shall be given unto you. Luke 6, 38. Uh, Pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men uh, uh, put into your bosom. Uh, the dictionary says it's very plentiful, right? If you have an abundant crop, if somebody does, an abundant crop of cotton or corn or soybeans, you know, everything just worked out well, and uh, you just have an abundance. It means to be ample or to be rich. And uh, I think we understand what the word abundant means. Uh, when I think about abundant, when I think about uh, rich and ample, uh, I remember when HD television was kind of introduced to our world almost 20 years ago. Uh, I know George Pudzes at Delrada, one of the members in Montgomery, had gotten one of these 50-inch HD televisions. Of course, I went over there to visit him. You know, he was having some uh, health problems, but I, I also wanted to see how this television worked. I had this... Uh, I had this 36-inch 
TV, you know, that was about this wide and this long, and it took a crew of men, you know, to move it around. It was so heavy, you know. Uh, in other words, if somebody broke in the house, they weren't stealing that thing, you know. So I had that, you know, and I was always particular. I want to be able to see a screen as clear as it can possibly be seen. I don't like this blurry stuff or whatever. But when I went over there to his house, there was a replay of a football game on, and he showed me I was floored at how vivid the images were. It was like you were there. I was just mesmerized at the abundant colors and how everything just stood out. And, and then he turned it over to a nature so, show. I just couldn't believe it. Now, that was 20 years ago. Now, you know, that's the only thing that's out there. We're used to that now, you know, HD. And we've got all kinds of new technology out there that is, and it's just going to keep getting better and better. But, you know, when I think about the word abundant, I think about how that screen just changed the whole way that I really wanted to view my television shows from my ball games from now on. I mean, it was, it was just incredible. And so our Lord wants us to live an abundant life. He doesn't want us to just live a life of existence. He wants us to have an abundant life here upon this earth. And you know, there's a marked contrast between a bare life and an abundant life. You know, we, we could probably think about those that we know or are aware of that just live a bare life. They just seemingly exist from one day to the next. I think that's sad, isn't it, to think about living your life that particular way. No real purpose in life, no real meaning in life. You know, you don't really have any value uh, values that that you hold your own, you just take it one day at a time and take what you need, however you can get it. You know, the bare life versus the abundant life is a marked difference. You know, science has been a great blessing to mankind in that science and medicine has taught us how to add years to our lives. I saw the other day the average life expectancy in our country's dropped somewhat since COVID. I think it's down to 74.6 years from what I had read. It was up near 77, you know, before 2020, and hopefully it'll go back up again. But you just think about, you know, somebody says, uh, Sister Beatrice, uh, how old is she going to be? She'll be 100, right? Coming up? What? 100 years old. We think if I could live to be 100, that would be a meaningful life, would it? You know, just because you live a long time, doesn't necessarily mean that you've lived an abundant life. Uh, and so uh, the, the basic problem is, is how to add years or add life to our years, right? That's what we want to do. We don't want to think about adding, uh, you know, years to our life as much as we want to add life to our years. And uh, I think about people who have lived long lives here in this building right now. And uh, they've lived their lives for the Lord, and uh, uh, they stand strong in their faith and in their service to God and to others. And certainly you can live a long life and live an abundant life, but it's the quality of our lives here upon this earth that make all the difference. Sometimes we find many people who are confused as to what constitutes an abundant life. 
You know, you think about Jesus. How, how old was he when he was crucified? 33. Did anybody ever do more in such a short period of time as did our Lord? Can you imagine? Just think about what our Lord accomplished, the impact he made upon the world in just 33 short years. That's amazing. And uh, some people think, you know, that's, that's what counts, though, is just the number of years, not necessarily the quality. Also, an abundant life is not found in the acquiring of secular knowledge. You know, some people, you know, just live their lives to be educated. You know, human wisdom, the gaining of secular knowledge, you know, that's the key to living an abundant life. And yet, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now certainly it's good to have knowledge, isn't it? I admire those people that do well in school and you know, they, they achieve great things academically. And they're able to be successful in that regard. But that knowledge without God's wisdom is useless and worthless. You know, human wisdom uh, is full of flaws. Human wisdom uh, passes away. And uh, it's the wisdom of God that we need to uh, put into our lives and to practice. And so uh, wisdom, human wisdom, is not going to necessarily produce an abundant life. And the abundant and successful life and graceful living is not found in the accumulation of material wealth. A lot of people think, man, I've got it made. I've got a big house. I live on a lake somewhere. I've got beautiful cars to drive. I'm financially secure. You know, that's the key to an abundant life, isn't it? And yet Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. For man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses, Luke 12 and verse 15. You know, we just turn on the news and, and we look throughout what's happening in our world, particularly over in the Middle East right now. The material things can be taken away in just a moment, can't they? I think about that fire last night. Fire is so destructive. You know, you think about those things that, that we treasure so much in this life. You know, they, there's no guarantee those things are going to be here tomorrow. Those who put their faith and trust in money, in land, in job, or whatever, you know, they're putting their faith in something that there's no guarantee that it's going to last. You know, we think about the fact that, you know, it'd be great if we were popular, like some of these Hollywood stars, you know, Taylor Swift or some of these other Hollywood stars that we read about from time to time. I don't know if you've noticed this. Have you noticed a lot of these Hollywood people are dying at a very young age, overdosing on drugs, you know, things of that nature? Uh, we're shocked by that sometimes, aren't we? How can it be? You've got everything you want. You're popular. You're well known by everybody. You've got a lot of money. And yet they live a life of misery you know, behind the scenes. Because all these things that the world places as being very important, when it comes down to it, it doesn't mean a thing as far as living an abundant life. All right, with those introductory thoughts, 
on uh, living an abundant life and making our lives more meaningful, I want to talk about, as time permits, a number of factors that are absolutely necessary for one to enjoy the blessing of putting more living into his daily life. There's some factors here, and you'll find these on your sheets as well. Uh, let's look at some of these. Number one, it is first necessary that we have a center reference point or an area of central control in our lives. If we want to live an abundant life, we have to have a center reference point. You know, I think that principle is applicable to many areas of life. In math, for example, the center point of reference is the decimal point, isn't it? I, don't, I never did like math. I never was good at math. And I still say to this day, I've not used geometry for one second in my life that I'm aware of. You know, I've always told I would use everything I learned in school. Still hadn't used geometry yet, as far as I know. I just didn't like it and uh, didn't do well at it. And uh, anyhow, but I do know that the center point of mathematics is the decimal point. In literature, the center point of reference is found in the basic rules of grammar, right? We learn some of those basic rules and, and you have to go back to those center points of reference as far as those rules to, to uh, write proper grammar. In the business world, the center point of reference is found in the profit and loss statement, isn't it? You know, uh, how are we handling our business? We look at the profits and the losses. In our religious lives and in our lives in general, what should be our center point? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, for us to have an abundant life, must be our center reference point. And because we're human, because we are bombarded with so many distractions and pressures from the world round about us, it's easy to forget what that center point is, isn't it? It's easy to lose sight of our priorities, isn't it, when we are so bombarded with our everyday activities, we get involved and we become so focused on our job or on family or all these other things that have to be done, sometimes our lives just end up in chaos because we've got away from our center reference point. You know, the wise man of all the ages understood how easy it is to fall from our relationship with God. Wise men have said, you know, to err is human. That's true, isn't it? To err is human. We are human beings and we falter along the way. And uh, I'm thankful that our Heavenly Father is aware of the tendency on the part of man to err. He is aware of our shortcomings. Uh, God is aware of our failures in so many ways. And because of that, God's made so many gracious provisions for us. For example, Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. There's a way God has provided for us to get back to that center point in our lives. In 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, people out in the world that are lost in sin without hope, 
they need to be brought to Jesus Christ, don't they? They need to understand that for their life to have real meaning, they must have Jesus Christ in their lives. They must understand who Jesus Christ is, that he is the Son of God. They need to understand that, that faith in Jesus will lead to obedience to our Lord's commands. And ultimately, to be right with God and to become a Christian, one changes his life, right? He says, I'm not going to follow the old way anymore, my old life. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to change my mind, and I'm going to do what he says. And as we confess that he's the Son of God, we are immersed in water. And what happens when we're immersed in water? All those past sins are washed away, right? That individual comes up from that water grave of baptism. He now has a new center point of reference. It's serving the Lord. It's putting him first in our lives. And as we live our lives uh, each day as Christians, sometimes we falter. Sometimes we fall short. Maybe we just leave the Lord completely for some reason. But what can we do? We can always come back. The Lord wants us to come back to that center point of reference. And that's one of the promises that God has made. As long as we have Jesus Christ as the center point of reference, if and when we do wonder, we can always find our way back. I think about some of the uh, Arctic explorers, and this is just an illustration, I think, that talks about the center point of reference. Uh, you know, up in the Arctic where they have explored in the past, you know, a blizzard just suddenly can come up and you may lose your way. And so these uh, explorers, these people out in that kind of wintry weather and that kind of atmosphere carry a tracking pole, you know, a long pole so maybe they can push down and see if it's safe uh, to go ahead. And uh, one time one of these individuals was just about back where he was camped and a blizzard came up. I mean, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. He didn't know what he was going to do. So what he did was he took that tracking stick, that long pole, and stuck it in the ground. He had a piece of red cloth that he tied it on top of that pole. And what he would do, since he couldn't see hardly, he would go out a few feet. He knew he wasn't far from camp. And if he didn't find the camp, he could go back to that pole, right? Then he would go in this direction. Then he would turn around if he couldn't find his camp and go back to that pole with the red piece of cloth on it. And finally, on the fourth try, he made it back to his camp. But the point is, he needed that center point of reference, that tracking pole, in order to make sure he didn't get lost and ultimately lose his life. And just like our lives today, Jesus Christ is our center point. Whenever we maybe wander off a little bit and we go astray, we can always come back, right, to our center point of reference, Jesus Christ. He loves us and he wants us to be saved. Number two, though, uh, to really uh, put more living into our daily lives, we need to develop an optimistic outlook on life. Now, the difference between an optimistic attitude and outlook and the pessimistic attitude and outlook is one's attitude toward life, 
toward our opportunities and toward our responsibilities. Now, an optimist says, if I don't try, I can't win. A pessimist says, if I don't try, I can't fail. There's a difference between being an optimist and a pessimist. And because of who we are as Christians, because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, because we were taken away from a situation where we had no hope in this world, we were without, we were without God in this world completely. Because we are Christians, we have wonderful assurances given to us by the Father. We have every reason in the world to be optimistic because of who we are. You know, I think about our kids at Kids Sing, and I hope it's something that grown-ups apply to their lives as well. We, we say, I'll do my best. I'll never give up and let God take care of the rest. That's important, isn't it? And if I'm an optimist, that's going to be my philosophy of life. I'm going to always do my best. I may not do as well as you. I don't compare my life to you. God doesn't expect me to do what you do, but he expects me to do my best. And so I'm always going to do my best. And I know with God's help, I'm not going to give up. And whatever I can't do on my own, I know that God will take care of the rest. You think about other passages of Scripture that emphasize you know, optimism and the importance of optimism. Think about Romans 8 and verse 28. We know that means there's no doubt about it. It's not up for discussion. We know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. Now that verse doesn't say all things are good, does it? Because they're not. We saw that last night, right? I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the future of my health may be. I don't know what my future financial situation may be. There's a lot of things I don't know, but I do know this. I know God's in control, right? I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And that verse says, all things, both good and bad, intertwined together, will work out for good to them that love the Lord. Now, I, I don't see how that's going to happen all the time. I can't see into the future, and God doesn't tell me how this awful situation can turn out for good. I may never know, but I have to trust God, don't I? I have to put my faith in God, and as a Christian, I'm optimistic. Even about the trials and difficulties, as James says, count it all joy when you fall into manifold trials. I look at my life, no matter what happens, and I'm optimistic because I know God's in control, and I know even through difficult times, all things work together for good. Or what did Paul say in Philippians 4 and verse 13? He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What better optimism can you find than a statement like that? Or what about uh, 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 14? Now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Now you think about that particular statement. That's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to be triumphant. We're trying to be victorious. And the Bible says, thanks be to God, who causes us to be triumphant where? In 
Christ Jesus. And so we have every reason to be optimistic. And if every Christian would demonstrate this kind of optimistic attitude that we ought to demonstrate, that would serve as a powerful and magnetic force to attract people of this world to Christianity and to Jesus Christ himself. If they saw the optimism that we have in our lives. Also, quickly, uh, putting more living into our daily lives can only be accomplished when we have peace of mind. Isn't it wonderful as a Christian to go to bed and have peace of mind? Isn't it wonderful that the worst case scenario for a faithful child of God is that you get to go to heaven? There's no ultimate tragedy that can ever happen to a faithful Christian. You ever thought about that? No ultimate tragedy at all. And uh, I'm I don't know. I'm not going to try to finish this lesson tonight. I'm going to finish it up next week, but I'm going to start this particular point and we'll finish up quickly next week. But there is essential four things, some elements that are key for us to have this peace of mind. There's some things that uh, people are seeking after. Number one, to have peace of mind, I need to listen intently. Who do I need to listen to? Your spouse? No. I mean, you ought to, but you need to listen to God, don't you? We need to listen to God. God is speaking to us how? Through his word, through his revealed will. And we need to be still and know that he is God. And we need to listen to God's word as he speaks to us. That's how we can have peace of mind, knowing that we're doing God's will. Secondly, to have peace of mind, I need to reach back and examine my heritage. You know, our religious past, our religious heritage ought to have great meaning to us. You think about the history of this church. You know, this church is strong today. This church is great today because of those in the past, because of the foundation that it's built upon. And in 50 or 60 years, the church then will be as strong as hopefully it is now because we set the proper foundation for the future. And our indebtedness to those who lived before us, to those who helped us to establish the heritage that we enjoy must be recognized and appreciated. You know, that's one thing that's wrong with our country, isn't it? The younger generation has forgotten our heritage. They have forgotten the foundations upon which this country was founded. Uh, and when we forget our heritage, when we forget our background, you know, we don't live in the past, of course. You know, we, we, we aren't necessarily uh, what we are in our faith and all just because somebody believed that in the past. But we are today based upon, you know, those that lived in the past. And we need to look at the past with appreciation and thankfulness for what has been done for us. And because of them, I'm here today. You know, because of somebody in your past, you're a Christian now, isn't it? You know, because somebody was led to Christ and set the stage for the future, you're a child of God today. And so we need to appreciate our heritage. And then quickly, uh, to have peace of mind, we need to clearly understand our own motives. Uh, you know, many demonstrate the attitude, you know, go for it, feels good, do it. You know, we never, many people don't examine their motives. They don't examine their true convictions. Understanding our motives 
will help us to understand our priorities. And it will prevent us from rushing about life without really accomplishing anything worthwhile. You know, when I have my motives and my, and my convictions, I have a purpose for which I live. You know, a man hasn't lived, somebody said one time, unless he has a purpose for which he's willing to die. And Christianity gives us that purpose. All right, I'm going to stop right there. Okay, it's a good stopping point, and I'm not going to rush these last few points. I think I can finish this next week in five minutes or less, I hope. And uh, we'll begin lesson two next week, and I'll have another handout for you. But thank you so much for your attention. I appreciate it very much.